0: Please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. And then another thing I want to do just before we dig into our study. We just received our morning offering. And you know, we've hit a milestone as a church in 2014. For the first time in our church's history, uh, we have a million dollar missions budget. Out of our five million dollar budget, a million dollars of it is going to missions. That means that one dollar of every five that you give goes to missions. And that is an exciting milestone. I've prayed for years that God make us one of those million-dollar mission budget churches. And what a thrill it is to pass that particular thing. And let me tell you why it's had such an impact on the world uh, down through the years. Came across an article this past week, fascinating article, about a book by a guy by the name of Robert Woodbury. And this book is just rocking uh, the halls of academia. It's considered, they've called it a, an atomic bomb in the sociological uh, community of upper higher education and academia. Uh, because uh, there has been this stereotype against world missions and the impact of it in the secular world. And this secular book came out. It's peer-reviewed. It's a secular study because of the hardcore research that has gone into it that is such a, so easily to defend and, and to and investigate and to understand. It has had this huge impact because it's irrefutable the impact that world missions has had in a positive way through the years. Now, there's been much that is done. Uh, if you ever see a missionary portrayed in movies or in the media or in upper academia, you will see that there is this kind of prejudice against them and there's this emphasis on their mistakes and mistakes have been made. But it's so crazy because the mistakes are magnified And the good contributions are minimized and it's absolutely absurd to portray it in any way other than a tremendous force for good. It would be kind of like saying, taking just this year and saying the Lakers have invested too much money into Kobe Bryant. I mean, if you had just this year and just focus on this year, but that would be crazy because you got to look at the scope of his career. Five NBA titles that he's brought to Los Angeles. And when you look at the scope of it, it's been a tremendous force for good. And yet there's been this distortion bordering on lies that has happened with regard to world missions. Uh, For example, Robert Woodbury in his research says that one stereotype about missions is that they were closely connected with Colonialism. But Protestant missionaries, not funded by the state, were regularly very critical of colonialism. And then on the positive side, this is the thing that has just been an atomic bomb in the sociological and historical uh, communities. This is what he has discovered about nations today where missionaries have been compared to nations today where they never got to those particular nations. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. Now, here's the kicker at the end. It is not just any missionaries, and it's not just any Protestant missionaries. It is what they call conversionary Protestant missionaries. Those that go seeking to lead people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're the ones, the ones that showed people how to go to heaven are the ones that on the way happened to have the greatest impact on their life here on earth before they got to heaven. And this is the thing that has just stunned the secular academic community. How can that be? Because it's, it's hip today that even if you are a Christian, it's kind of hip to say, well, build hospitals, but don't tell them about Jesus. Uh, Build orphanages but don't tell them about Jesus. Do water projects and feeding programs but don't tell them about Jesus. It is when we tell them about Jesus and in the process meet their physical needs, that's when nations are changed. And this book went on to say that if you were to, in a time machine, uh, say what's the best way to improve the lot of a nation today, go back in time one or 200 years and plant conversionary Protestant missionaries in that place. That's why I get so excited about giving is because you can change your world for Christ right from where you sit. That's why I love to give because we are part of a revolution 2,000 years in the making. Is there anything more exciting than be a part of the cause of followers of Jesus Christ? It is the greatest calling to which we can be called and what an absolute thrill it is. And I thank you so much for your faithfulness through the years, through so many years uh, for the cause of Christ. Now as we come to the story... I want to just read an email that um, got this past week. My husband and I have been reading the story out loud together, usually on Saturday nights. It's been such a joy to read and study Old Testament scripture together for the first time and then go to church on Sunday and hear all about it. A blessing indeed. My husband took your invitation to see Son of God last weekend seriously and invited three of his buddies and their wives to all go together, which we did. He invited the guys over last Tuesday night to go through the Son of God Bible study and DVD together, and they all came. Our friend is so excited to be studying the Bible, and he has so many great questions. We are blown away by God's faithfulness to put all this together. All four guys are committed for the next six weeks. Thank you for challenging us to step out. Yippee and hallelujah. I've never seen that word yippee for quite some time, but I think it applies very, very well there. Well, I hope that this uh, series has been uh, a help and a blessing to you. Today, we've come to the book of 1 Samuel, and the title of our study is Royal Obedience. God's plan was that we be part of the king's family, that we take the king and make him king of our hearts, as we were singing earlier, may thy kingdom come, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, make Jesus the king of our hearts, and then as royal royalty, as children of the king, to be obedient to the king. But now we're gonna see God's plan get distorted in the earlier chapters, the early chapters of 1 Samuel. Now the backdrop of these three major distortions. A man named Elkanah in Ephraim had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, Hannah was barren. That is, she was childless and heartbroken. And Peninnah, the one that was able to have children, purposely provoked Hannah's pain. Now, we're going to see a theme through this study that goes like this. There is the permissive will of God, and there is the perfect will of God. And why settle for the heartache of the permissive will of God when you can have the perfect will of God? Now, polygamy is a great example of this. God's uh, p- p- perfect will was uh, for there to be one man, one woman uh, uh, together in the Garden of Eden. That's why it was Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, and Kimberly. Okay, that was never His plan to happen. Although that would have been interesting, I want to tell you if there had been. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, and Kimberly. Uh, Polygamy was his permissive will. He allowed it to happen until eventually it was eradicated by the teachings of Jesus, who said God's perfect plan is not that, his perfect plan is Adam and Eve. One man, one woman there in the Garden of Eden. But how much heartache, I mean, when we live our Christian lives saying, how much can I get by with? How many bad things can I do and still say I'm a follower of Jesus? How few good things can I do? And still say, I'm a follower of Jesus. How much we miss out on and how much heartache we invite into our lives. Instead of saying, believing that principle, God leaves the best for those that leave the choosing up to him. To get up every morning and say, God, what is your perfect plan for me? What adventures do you have for me? I want your perfect will not settling for your permissive will. Now, polygamy is a great example of this. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. And if you parents looking for names for your children, there's some, um, you know, I see Pastor Tomiko and Chris, uh, you know, I'm telling you, we got Tohu, Zuth, and Elihu. Uh, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his own town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. So do you see what's being set up here? He loves Hannah more, but Peninnah is able to give him more children or children at all. And Hannah was unable to do so. What heartache. What rivalry. I mean, you think you've got drama in your home. What kind of drama is this going to produce? And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Now, her husband, Elkanah, he receives here the clueless guy of the year award. (laughs) Now, he closely edged me out. I was a close second, but uh, he does win the award. Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Who needs kids when you've got me? (laughs) By the way, this is a good time for a commercial. <laughs> Page two in your program. Great marriage conference we got here right on campus. Uh, it's going to be right here on campus in the H building. And I love the way they've planned this, the marriage ministries here, because you know it's killer giving up a whole weekend, isn't it? I mean, there's just so many things. You, you're barely keeping your head above water during the week, and then you got to catch up on some errands. And I love they've planned it. It's just Friday night and Saturday morning. You still got the rest of Saturday to, to get your stuff done that you need to get done. And so really encourage you, you know, we, I, my, I'm, wor- you know, our marriages are under attack. Does anybody want to say amen to that? It's hard to be married, to stay married, to have a happy marriage. We got to be vigilant. And so let me just encourage you. This is just like a simple Friday night and Saturday morning uh, commitment to the Safe Harbor Conference. And, and just what a great boost uh, to our marriages. Just And this isn't for marriages on their last... I mean, it is for if they're on your last legs. But it's for good marriages to be great marriages, and great marriages to be even greater marriages. We need to keep ongoing, ongoing education. We do that at work. We need to do it with our marriages as well. At Shiloh, where the tabernacle rested, Hannah prayed to God for a child, promising to dedicate the child to God. He hears her prayer and Samuel, which in the Hebrew means God has heard, is born, and dedicated to God in service at the tabernacle. Now, this worked out perfectly with Child Dedication Sunday because this passage right here is one of the main basis we use in Scripture for child dedication. So it's like perfect that we just happen to be this here in the story on this particular day as we saw these precious children being dedicated to the Lord. She says, I prayed for this child. So you pray for a child. The Lord has granted me what I ask of him. The Lord, so he, this little boy or little girl is a gift from God. So now I give him or her to the Lord for his or her whole life, he or she will be given over to the Lord. Lord, whatever plans you have for this child, it may end up being different than my plans. I mean, how many of you, your children live far away and you wish they lived closer? How many of you have children you wish that live closer to you? I do. And yet you say, God, whatever your plan is, that's, that's what I want for them. More than my will, thy will be done in their life. And he, meaning Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. That's the whole goal of child dedication is that by our example and by our teaching and by our prayers that we transfer our faith to the next generation. So now it's not Hannah's faith. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Now Samuel encounters God for himself, and he worships the Lord there. So it's a perfect overview of what child dedication is all about. By the way, the next two child dedications are Mother's Day and Father's Day. So if you sit there and you say, oh, we'd like to do that. Well, mother it's easy to remember Mother's Day and Father's Day are our next child dedications. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, next page of your study outline. Here are some distortions to God's plan that's going to happen. Three major distortions we're going to look at. Uh, The first is the distortion of phoniness. That is where we we say one thing and we live differently uh, than what we say. At Shiloh, the priest was Eli. Now, Eli, he had a lot of flaws, but he did have a faith in God. He was a man of God. He followed after God. He had a firsthand faith. But he has two sons that have a secondhand faith. They never encountered God for themselves. They merely encountered him through their dad. Secondhand faith rather than a firsthand faith. Hophni and Phinehas... They did two things. They abused the sacrificial system. That is, they embezzled funds from the church, and they committed sexually immoral acts. They had affairs with the women that worked there at the tabernacle. Eli refused to reprimand his sons. And this is just a a heartbreaking trend that we see in Scripture. Sometimes you can be a, a man of God, a woman of God, And yet it doesn't get transferred to our children. And I know this is like something we pray about as parents and as grandparents so much. Oh, God, help our kids and our grandkids to have a a first-hand faith, not a second-hand faith. We see this happen to Eli. Now, for him, you know, sometimes parents do all they can do, and yet the children still go in their own direction. But Eli is culpable here. He does not reprimand his sons. It's kind of like David, who was a man after God's own heart. We're going to start talking about David next Sunday. Man after God's own heart, but he had the same problem as Eli. There's this one verse about one of David's sons who went astray, that he never interfered with him. He was an active follower of God, man after God's own heart, but he was a passive father, as was Eli. And the tragedy is, is that Samuel sees this whole thing unfold with his mentor, Eli, and yet Samuel has the same thing happen to him with his sons that we're going to see in just a minute. Eli refused to reprimand his sons, and God judged them with death. There's that proverb that says, when we discipline our children, we save them from death. And literally, they lost their lives because their father had not disciplined them. And the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen from Shiloh. And you can read that as you go through the story. Here's the key point of the first uh, distortion. Distortion. You can't just have an outward appearance of religion. You must be genuine on the inside. We must be authentic and live what we believe. And then the distortion of conformity. The people asked Samuel to anoint a king over them so that they can be like the other nations. See, Israel was raised up by God to influence other nations to follow after God. But instead here, we have influence Israel being influenced by the nations around them rather than Israel influencing those nations. And that's the challenge for each of us. Do we influence the other students at school or do they influence us? Do we have an impact on the people we work with or do they impact us? Do we have influence on the people in our neighborhood and our family or do we conform to their expectations rather than them being influenced by us? Israel was called by God to call the nations to faith in God. But instead, the nations influenced them and they began to want to be like the nations around them. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. Uh, they turned aside After three things, dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. Sounds just like the headlines from today, doesn't it? Uh, Sounds like leaders today. It's as old as 3,000 years ago. Dishonest uh, politician, dishonest gain, accepted bribes, perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Okay, there's a leadership vacuum. And, and, and we praise God for good leaders in government. Praise God for good leaders in our community. Praise God for good leaders in business and in the home and in schools and education um, in our communities. We, we praise God for good leaders, but where there are no good leaders, okay, there's a leadership vacuum. And where there's a leadership vacuum, we begin to conform to the culture and nations around us. That's why we need leaders in the church, in business, in politics, in the community, in our homes. That's why we talk about our oikos, the 8 to 15, and our sphere of influence. These 8 to 15 people, that we are to influence them not to conform to them, but we influence them and and change our world for Christ. And so they said... Your sons are old and you are old and your sons do not follow your way. So there's a leadership vacuum. And where there's a leadership vacuum, that's where conformity to culture takes place. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. You want a king? Let me tell you what it's going to be like. He will take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants. Is this sounding familiar or what? Okay. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Does this sound like rampant big government out of control or what? That it serves us for a while and then we become slaves to it. It says you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Sometimes God lives, helps us, allows us to live with the results of our decisions. And in his permissive will, he sometimes permits us to experience certain things as a result of his permissive will so that it will drive us back to his perfect will once again. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Uh, Randy Frazee uh, writes about this. He said, it's a bit comical but mostly sad, isn't it? The price we're willing to pay to be like everyone else. In the lower story, all the other nations surrounding Israel have kings. But the Israelites just have priests and prophets leading them, religious people. Kings wore regal robes and jeweled crowns. Priestly garments were quite simple and drab by comparison. Kings could make decisions on the spot. Religious leaders checked in with God first and conferred among themselves. Kings commanded massive battalions of horse-drawn chariots that carried warriors dressed in armor and brandishing swords and spears. Religious leaders told their men to blow horns and shout or carry candles in clay pots why can't we be like everyone else? Simple. In God's upper story, he wants something better for us. He wants us to be so different that we attract others to him and his ways. Everyone else indeed have their kings, but they also have rampant idolatry and barbaric behavior. They worship pagan gods and seek no guidance from the one true God on how to live and treat each other. If the Israelites were to become like, quote, everyone else, how could God build his nation? How would they be able to attract others to him? I I know sometimes, particularly you young adults, the world seems so attractive. And sometimes the ways of God seem so out of touch and out of date. And yet, his ways are best. His ways are good. There is joy and delight in following after the perfect will of God. Now God tells Samuel that the people are rejecting him. The people are not rejecting him. They are rejecting God. Verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they are rejecting me as their king. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a couple of minutes. If you've never placed Jesus on the throne of your heart, I'm going to give you the chance to do that. It's not by accident that you happen to come here on clock change day, even though you lost an hour or you're watching online. This is going to be your moment. March 9th, 2014, Jesus is going to invite you to dethrone, uh, to, to have a coup and get rid of the other kings on your heart and to receive him as your king and Lord and Savior. Uh, to dethrone king materialism or king greed or king immorality or king doing things my own way or king Glenn or whatever your name is. Um, uh, a king, put myself as king on there. Dethrone myself and put him on the throne of our hearts. And every day we've got a daily decision after we do that, who's on the throne of my heart? Do I get up every morning and say, King Jesus, tell me what your perfect will is for this day? Or do I say, Jesus, King Jesus, what can I get by with and still claim you as my king? The permissive will of God or the perfect will of God. Here's another thing to note here. Is that we tend to think, oh, well, God, we know what rejection is. We know how it hurts to get turned down for a job or uh, somebody that we love walks out of our lives or to get rejected for a date or whatever it might be. We know what it's like to hurt from rejection, but God's, God's big, he's powerful, he's in heaven, it doesn't hurt him. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God is not some vapor, he's not some substance uh, that's kind of vague, he's not some distant dictator of the universe, he is a God whose heart can be broken. And when we reject him, it breaks the heart of God. Can you imagine how he felt towards Israel? He, he rescues them out of slavery. He calls them to be his people. Then he rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. Then he provides for all their needs in the wilderness. He gives them the promised land, their own special land, a fertile land. He blesses them in every possible way. And then they say, you know what? We'd rather have a king. We don't need you anymore, God. We reject you. We want a king like the other nations and culture around us. Don't aim, key point number two, to be like everyone else. God's people are to be distinct. We are not called to be like other people. We are God's unique people. And then thirdly, the distortion of disobedience. And from the moment that they choose to have a king, there's only one word that can describe Israel's history tragedy. It's tragic from that point forward. Now they get somebody who looks like a king, they pick Saul, and do you know what their main criteria was for picking Saul? He looked like a king. He was a head taller. What is that? What's a head? You know, six to 12, eight inches, you know, inches taller than everybody else. He was a head above everybody else. In our day, we would say he looks presidential, okay? And you say, what kind of of barbaric, what kind of Neanderthal culture picks their king by who's tallest? How dumb is that? Wait a minute. (laughs) Almost every presidential election in my lifetime has been won by the person who's taller. Did you know that? Now, it's a myth that it's all the time. But I went through, last night before I went to bed, I went through every president during my lifetime compared heights to their contender. This is what I do for fun and in my spare time. And, and in my lifetime, only two times has a non incumbent uh, beaten somebody who's taller than them. The, the taller person has always won, except if they have the power of incumbency. Uh, just two exceptions to that Jimmy Carter uh, beat Gerald Ford in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. And then um, George W. Bush beat Al Gore, and we know how close that was, don't we? And in every other case, the taller candidate has won. That's why today I'm announcing that Greg's Volstead is my candidate for president, Uh, Pastor Greg. uh, His running bait is going to be Pastor Brian. Uh, How many would vote for Greg and Brian? I would. I'm telling you, right there. And they are going to win this thing, okay, Uh, based on that criteria. But boy, what a, um, what a heartache kingship brought the nation of Israel. It was a 1,000-year mistake. They made this mistake in 1,000 B.C., and it is a 1,000-year mistake. God allows the people to have a king, his permissive will, though it was not God's perfect will. And then Samuel anoints Saul, who is empowered by the Spirit to defeat the Ammonites. So it starts, good, well, it starts good. Okay, picking the tall guy works for like a while, and then it goes south. He wants a man after his own heart. Saul disobeys God by not obeying God's command to wait for Samuel. God rejects Saul as king, and David is chosen, and that's where we'll pick it up next Sunday. But let's uh, kind of end with this verse before our final key point. He says, For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You know, we tend to rank sins sometimes. And we say, well, okay, I might have rebelliousness against God, but I've never been involved in Satan worship or the occult. God says rebellion is like the sin of divination or Satan worship or the occult. Well, I may be arrogant in wanting my own way rather than God's way, but at least I've never bowed down to an idol. Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Final key point. Let us be like Samuel who obeyed God and not like Saul who disobeyed God. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Now, final clue. Remember, we see these clues at the beginning of the story that give us a hint as to how it's going to end up. This wanting a king rather than God so they could be like the other nations around them is, is like I said, a 1,000-year mistake. But here's the good news. a 1,000 years go by, and all of a sudden, a voice comes out of the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And in Mark 1, verse 14, after John the Baptist was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God, that is God as king of our hearts, once again has come near. What do you do about it? Repent. Repent means to change direction. Dethrone whatever is on that throne other than God repent, and believe the good news. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. And if you've never obeyed those words of Jesus, here's what he invited you here this morning to hear, to hear these words. He invited you here, or you're watching online, and he wants you to hear this. The time has come. March 9th, 2014, the kingdom of God, God being your king once more, has come and it's near. Repent, that is, Lord, now I take myself off the throne or whatever else is there and I put you on the throne of my heart. I repent and I believe the good news. Jesus, I open my heart to you and put you on the throne of my life. Be my leader, my Lord, my Savior, and my King. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we've got some gifts for you at the south end of the lobby at the guest center, or the north end of the lobby. We've got a packet of things that will help you in your walk with God. And if you prayed that prayer today, please, uh, no obligation whatsoever, just stop by and pick up this gift uh, as you leave. We've got the prayer room open over here. If there's anything you'd like prayer for, uh, the deacons are there, and they would just love to pray for you. Let's stand for our closing uh, benediction. And, you know, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer... We're praying that God be king instead of other things being king. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So I thought it would be appropriate that we finish our time uh, as a benediction by saying the Lord's Prayer uh, together. So let's say it out loud together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.